Welcome, John. It's uh, great, to, great to be in conversation again. Uh, your talks that you gave us here, well, some years ago now on both Genesis and Deuteronomy, uh, certainly have stand the test of time. As a matter of fact, at the moment, Anne and I are going through your Deuteronomy talks and finding them a great blessing as a guide into the law. I think that was about seven years ago. Yep. That, wow. It was. It was good yeah. Always good to have conversations with you, Tony. Yeah. Um, now, and then we met last year uh, when you were in Sydney and you talked about the way your thoughts on Genesis 1 were evolving um, and in particular uh, that the, um, I suppose, the archetypes of order um, you were seeing more and more as the, the governing archetypes of Genesis and indeed the Old Testament and indeed then the New Covenant and that this uh, archetype of order, um, your words were we've overemphasized sin as the governing archetype um, and, and um, uh, you know, we can trace that back, back, back perhaps to our Reformation origins and, you know, they did a job in their day but we're in the 21st century with other other challenges and and this recovery of a of a paradigm that doesn't exclude sin but seems to me to be bigger than it is a very very interesting and you went further and you'd really seen it was order and its I wouldn't say opponents but its opposites being both disorder and non-order and that uh, that is what I would like to talk with you about so why don't I just ask you to give your summary of this of uh, what I've just said, that how your mind is working on this order theme. Sure. I call it the order spectrum. And it's trying to understand what categories we can effectively, productively use to think about the world around us. It's very common in the post-Reformation era, certainly, but probably before that, uh, to think in, in moral categories. So we think about the world in terms of good and evil. And that has its benefits. Uh, it helps us to see certain things clearly, but it also causes a little bit of confusion in some other areas. And so I've tried to look back at the ancient world, including the Israelite context, to try to think about how, how do they categorize their experience? Are they using the same moral categories that we tend to use? And that would be fine if they were, but I, I want to know. Uh, we'll never find out if we don't ask the questions and investigate it. And so that's what I was looking into. And I found that um, the, the highest value, and I find this all through the ancient Near Eastern literature, but also through the Bible as well, the highest value that they had was order. And they were seeking to establish order and understand order and pursue order. Uh, they looked for order in the cosmos. They looked for order in uh, political relationships. They looked for order in government and people. They looked for order in families, husbands and wives, uh, and uh, parents and children, order in society. They were seeking order. And they saw wisdom as the pathway to order. And so that's why wisdom itself was something that was important to them. It was something to be practiced and pursued and uh, in, in every way that you could perceive it. And so 
order is the, the value. Now, the, the next step was to say, so we, do we just have two categories? I mean, like we talked about good and evil as a dichotomy. Uh, and I concluded that no, no, we don't. The texts in the ancient world are pretty clear that there's three categories. Uh, there's non-order, which is neutral. It is not moral in nature. It is not volitional. It is not, it just is not yet ordered. It's like the boxes when you're moving to a new place and you haven't unpacked the boxes yet. That's non-order. It's not evil. It's not a bad thing. It's just not ordered yet. And that's non-order. But then on the other side of order, there is disorder. And disorder is when someone is trying to disrupt the order of another. Again, that can be done with evil intent, with um, kind of sin is certainly that kind of disruptive force. But also, there are times when God can bring disorder. That is, when our own human efforts um, are not going a good direction, God can disrupt them. And so that idea that we have these three categories, non-order, which can be brought into order, and order, which can be disrupted by disorder. And I find that that satisfies uh, the criteria for trying to understand how they thought in the ancient world. And we can see it through the Bible as well. Uh, that's really powerful. Um, and... Um... Uh, I'd like to go inside that word order more, and I guess I, I come at that word from a modern context. Um, uh, what I mean by that is, as you know, uh, design and creativity is, is how I would interpret um, a lot of the human endeavour on the earth. Um, and in design, um, order or beauty is one of the great... Uh, is, 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 is the great goal. So um, in the world of design, for, design is a bigger word than problem solving, if I could put it that way. Um, and uh, the category of problem solving has tended to dominate uh, theories of cognition and intellectual um, process. People, people view that as problem solving. That's very negative, uh, whereas order is bigger. Order is the imposition of my uh, will um, on the environment. Um, so it's a big word that fits very nicely. in. Yeah, so you're not thinking in terms of fixing something that's wrong, you're thinking about bringing about something that's, that's right, that's, that's the way it ought to be. Correct. So Correct. it's not problem solving, fixing what's wrong. It's not. I give the example of um, Michelangelo painting the roof of the Sistine Chapel. You know, how many of us would naturally say uh, that's problem solving? None of us would say that. Um, we, he might have solved a few problems along the way. I mean, he had a lot of trouble with the Pope paying his accounts. You know, that's a problem he had to solve. Um, but the actual... Um, the work he was doing was a work of art, and 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 that that I think gets a lot closer to God's creative activity and and our role in it. So the word order is a big big word for me. Um, One of my children, when they were young, I was talking to them about what they were learning in school, and they were saying they were learning about Michelangelo painting the ceiling in the Sistine Chapel. And I said to them, "Well, so what did you learn?" He said, "I'm still confused about something." 
what color did he paint it? Was it white? <laughs> and, and, you know, we paint the ceiling in our houses sometimes to kind of solve a problem, to just make it, make it nice. But he was doing far more than solving a problem. He was doing far more than solving a problem. Um, and um, anyway, look, I'd like to dig into that word a bit with you, the word order, um, it, because it seems to me, and particularly I'm doing it in contrast to the sin paradigm, because uh, let me throw that one to you. I mean, I've often said, I, I used to think I was going out on a limb. I was so glad when, um, uh, when a credible uh, senior theologian such as yourself was out on the same limb with me. But, uh, the Genesis 3 is actually not the paradigm that certainly the Old Testament chooses to structure itself in. Um, it's actually not much referred to in the rest of the Old Testament. And um, it seems a subset, not a dominating theme. Can I ask you about that? Well, that's absolutely correct. You know, read through the prophets. Uh, do they ever trace back to Adam and to his sin? Uh, there's like one text which some people think might refer to Adam and his sin, uh, but which is a questionable text. And no, they trace the sin of Israel. That is, Israel violating the covenant that God made with them. That's the paradigm that they use for wrongdoing, right. uh, that kind of violation. So the Old Testament really does not make a big thing about uh, Adam and what went on in the Garden of Eden. They really never mention it again. So how would you link then um, Israel's sin and the covenant to order? Do you, do you sort of make a connection there? Sure. Uh, when I think about the covenant, I don't think about law and promise and salvation and those things which we often have connected to covenant. Mm -hmm. I see the covenant as God's counterproposal to reestablish his presence in the world. Mm -hmm. Now I say counterproposal because at the Tower of Babel, they were trying to reestablish God's presence in the world. God's presence had been lost at the Garden of Eden, and they are trying to bring God down. Tower of Babel is not about people going up. It's about coming down, and they were trying to bring God down to have him enter a temple so that they could worship him. But the text tells us that their motive was that they wanted to make their names great. That is, they were after their own success, and God rejects that initiative. So the covenant is his counter-initiative to say how it is that he's going to reestablish his presence among people. Mm -hmm. The covenant is the first step of that. That is, it forms a relationship between God and Abraham, and then God and Abraham's family. But all of that covenant is moving toward that point at the end of Exodus, where God comes down and takes up his dwelling in the tabernacle among the Israelites. And so God's presence is what is the basis for order. That's God created order in Genesis 1, and then he came as the source and center of order uh, to take up his residence in the Garden of Eden. And so God's presence is connected to order because he is the source and center of order. The Torah, which we often translate law, is God telling Israel, how should you order your society as people who are in covenant relationship with me, exalting my name, and with me dwelling among you? And again, that's the order that is supposed to exist in their society. So covenant has to do with order. 
presence has to do with order, Torah has to do with order. That's very powerful. Now, let me just uh, sort of respond to that. Um, uh, from the modern world of design, which is, um, by the way, when I talk about design, um, I, as you know, my life has been a Joseph and Egypt life, <laughs> uh, working in a so-called secular world. Um, but I've had the experience um, of Jacob of feeling like half the time on I'm on holy ground and don't know it. And what, and the holiest of ground has been whenever I've been with a group of human beings who with good heart are trying to create order generally in, a, in an organisation or a social situation. And um, a friend of mine who is a great designer from America, not a believer, told me that uh, he believed that the most defining characteristic of human beings and the most profound and ennobling was design, which, which we could say is creating order. And as a, as a result of that, he was now contemplating God in a way he hadn't before because he, he could put God in. But in what you've just said is very important. Um, uh, there's a great thing about design. It's personal. You know, design is not like science, which is really objectified. Um, all designers bring their identity to the design. If you look at a great architect, take Frank Lloyd Wright. You know, if you've seen one Frank Wright building, you've seen them all. Not, they're not repetitions of each other, but, you know, I can see his presence in that, the way he's structured, say, the whole house around the fireplace, as an example. And I think what you've said, I, I think, is really beautiful and quite important. I've not thought of it till you just said it. That because order on its own can sound like some objective arrangement of affairs, but you're saying, no, 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 it's actually, the, the image I've got is that it's personal. This order is an expression of God's character. So presence is inside of the order and making it alive. Correct. And so when I talk about creation and I talk about the created act is an ordering act. Mm -hmm. And again, certainly design is a word you could bring in there. The created act is an ordering act, but you always have to ask, ordered for what? Or ordered for whom? Yeah. Um, and so that's the big question that comes out of Genesis 1. Okay, so great, God's ordering the cosmos. For whom is he ordering it? And of course, my answer is twofold. He's ordering it for us, his creatures, so that we can live here, so that it serves effectively for us. But that can't be the end of it. Day seven, he's ordering it for himself because he plans to come and stay and to reside with us. And so he's ordering it with purpose. And in that sense, order and purpose have to go hand in hand. Well, uh, again, this is a really another very powerful point for me. Um, you, you know, you, I did talk about the, the paucity of problem solving as a intellectual construct at the beginning of this conversation and the richness of design. Um, if you're solving a problem, you don't really need to articulate purpose. The, the, the purpose is pretty transactional. You know, the car won't start, I need it to start. That's my purpose. <laughs> but if you're designing something and the, and the grander the design is, the more what becomes very important is to articulate your intent and your purpose. And um, in, in my uh, past life, which I've now retired from, but when we're doing strategy in Second Road, the articulation of purpose was a breakthrough in many, many cases. It wasn't just a breakthrough to inspire, it was a breakthrough to understand, uh, to generate options. Um, 
and and um, purpose, of course, is um, um, I was going to say it's non-scientific, but I mean science is not a study of purpose. It's it's a study of, of right. causes and effects, um, and um, uh, purpose is to me uh, vital. And what this leads us to is this um, inquiry into what the purposes of God are. Actually, uh, and, and I know as a younger Christian, I thought it was there was this sort of um, uh, circular reasoning, you know, why, you know, that, that God died to save us, which begs the question, well, why did he want to save us? I mean, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, um, it's so what? And, and whereas the going to Genesis 1, I've got to go to the very purposes of creation itself, which is going to lie behind um, order. And um, uh, it's, it's a rich inquiry. Now, now, you did mention something very important. I just wanted to bring another big word in that I see is a very big word in, in the New Testament. Um, and it's a particularly big word in Hebrews, which is rest. Um, and, and I'd like you to say something about that because I'm getting the feeling that rest is a, a very biblical term for the end game. And could you say something about that and connect it with order? It is. You know, we look at day seven as Christians, especially if we're using the sin salvation paradigm, and we hardly know what to do with day seven. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking of Genesis 1 in scientific terms, well, nothing happens on day seven. And, and it, sometimes people even talk about the six days of creation, which is a serious mistake. Mm -hmm. And that's largely because we don't understand the concept of rest, rest as the Bible intends it. Uh, for the Bible, rest is not something that you do in a bed or, or on a futon or a recliner or something of that sort. Uh, when God gives rest to his people Israel, he's not giving them leisure or downtime. He's giving them security and stability in a world of turmoil. And so we find that rest in the Bible is the opposite, not of activity. It's not the opposite of activity. It's the opposite of unrest. Mm -hmm. It's the opposite of turmoil. And rest is security and stability. And so when God rests... Okay, he rests in this uh, in this scenario where he has brought order, and he can rest because he has established order. And we find out in Psalm one thirty two that God's rest is his reign. Mm -hmm. It's not his inactivity. It's his activity. It's not his disengagement. It's his engagement. Mm -hmm. And so on day seven, God has now ordered creation, and now he takes up his seat on his throne. When God rests, he rests on a throne. And we can see this even when Jesus talks about Matthew 11, you know, come to me, all you who are weary, uh, overburdened, and I will give you rest. That's not I will give you leisure time or naps. That's I will give you security and stability in being able to transcend your circumstances and recognize a kingdom perspective, to look at things through a kingdom lens. And that will bring rest, even in the midst of turmoil. And that's why Jesus, and God does this too in Isaiah, uh, says, you know, that I, I am going to give you peace. Don't fear. Fear is how we feel. We feel fear when we're faced with unrest, with turmoil. And yet, even if that unrest is not resolved, God, Christ, can give peace because he can help us to feel our security in him, even though the world around us may be a mess. Yes. So 
these ideas all fit together. So this is the rest that the Bible talks about. It's a rest that has to do with God's rule in his ordered world. Um, as you were talking, a uh, metaphor came to my mind. It's a very Australian metaphor. It's about the sea and surfing. Um, and I think the sea is a picture often of chaos in the in, in the in the old of non-order, non-order. not disorder, but non-order. Non-order, right. yeah. Um, uh, and this actually came. Uh, this metaphor is not mine. It was from years and years and years ago. We were working with a group of uh, engineers, or I think they're in a mining company, and they were in a world of non-order. Um, I'll return to that in a moment. Um, Anyone trying to manage a big organisation, there's a lot of turbulence, uh, things not going right, and uh, people working, you know, 14 hours a day trying to just get control of things. And um, so we had this visioning exercise. I said, what's your vision? And, and this guy had this vision of surfing. And anyone in Australia, particularly if you're a bad surfer like I am, will know what it's like, which is there's this succession of white water that's pounding in on you as waves break. And getting through that, you know, you could paddle furiously in my case for 15 minutes and move one yard <laughs> and you're exhausted um, if you're skillful like my son you know how to get out there quickly but it's this what you can see just beyond you are these beautiful um curling waves without white water you want to get to them um this was his vision of where he wanted to go that we've got to get through this white water out to these let's call it rest you know because when you're out there you're still surfing. It's just you haven't got all the white water. Everything is easy and you're just in this beautiful connected space of symmetry and uh, um, form and your engagement in it and everything's easy. <laughs> so I thought that was a, that metaphor came to my mind as you were speaking. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I would like to, however, there's a, I wrote down a whole series of questions. We won't get through them, John, but um, I think if we just play with this order idea, um, it suggests a few things to me that are bigger than the sin question. You know, if you think of, if you have a paradigm, sin, salvation, sanctification, it's, all, it's a fairly static paradigm, you know, that, you know, I just get rid of the sins, that's done. It's finished, mm -hmm. you know. Whereas it feels to me the very word order seems to suggest an ongoing creative act. It's not like it's a static thing that's finished and packaged. Can you comment on that from the Genesis? Oh, absolutely. Of course, you know, we, to start to answer that, we have to go back to John, uh, and the idea that even though God ordered the cosmos in creation, he did not fully and perfectly order it. Could have done, but he didn't. It was tov, it was good, that means it was ordered. Mm -hmm. But then he creates people in his image to work alongside him in partnership to continue bringing order. There's an outside the garden that's not ordered. Darkness and sea are still there, non-order. So people are created to continue this process of ordering. Now you take that concept to the church and you take a look at the idea that, you know, when Christ's blood is shed on our behalf and applied to us, we then have our sin taken care of. But our job as the church is not just to be the saved people. Our job as the church is to be God's people in a world of turmoil, bringing order to the world through our actions of Christ in us and the Holy Spirit working through us. So being saved is just like being hired. Now you've got a job to do. And so the idea that the church 
is God's instrument by which he is bringing order to a world that is desperately in need of it. So the church has this role to play that is connected to God's ordering. Yes, and this is um, something that I'm very passionate about, uh, which I think the church has been blind to for two... I don't think the church has had a very strong um, theology of for 2,000 years, mostly, which is what I would call the public faith, the Joseph and Egypt world. Um, um, you know, I think churches are very good at their own programs, but people like me sit in churches and... Um, the church has no idea what I'm doing on Monday, none whatsoever, or all the other people. Uh, whereas if there was a vision that the role of the church was to promote the hired people to go out and order their world in the various places that they are uh, working, their professional lives in particular, but their social lives, I think this would give a much bigger goal for the, 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 the sort of influence of, of Christians in the public space. I think you're right. It's not just a matter that we're supposed to be out there surviving. And it's not even just a matter that we're supposed to be out there evangelizing. We should do both of those things, but doesn't constitute the whole goal that we have. You know, this goes back to something that I believe we often miss, but it expresses really what the role of scripture is. That is, we think of the Bible all kinds of ways. It's a how-to book. It's a theology book. It's a you know, science book. It's a history book. It's the gospel book. It, and it, and it, there are ways in which it is those things, but ultimately what the Bible is, is God's revelation plans and purposes. And they start in Genesis 1. They go all the way through new creation, and he's revealing his plans and purposes so that we might be aware of them so that we can get on board and participate in them. He wants us to be part of those plans and purposes, not just by joining his movement, but by actually being his representatives and being uh, his stewards in bringing order to the world. Yes, and this is um, uh, very, very inspiring, you know, for... um, how we might be, I like the word you use, which is participate. You know, the picture you're giving us is that God began an ordering process and ordering is not a getting rid of sin process. It's an expression of my character through into the created order. He began that and humanity is called to pick the baton up from God and continue it into every nook and cranny of life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love what you said about the scripture because I, I've often thought another limiting factor for Christians, which not many think about, I know you do, um, um, and I do a lot too, but is well, what genre is this text? You know, And I think a lot of the Christians de facto read it as an instruction manual or something like that, you know, God's perfect you know, instruction manual. And whereas what you've said is uh, very profound, you know, um, which is about his purposes. Um, And, um, you know, as you said that, it reminded me of one of the most profound theories of task delegation that I've ever come across uh, from, not my own, it was a brilliant um, English psychologist uh, who I did a lot of work with in the mining industry many years ago. His name is Ian McDonald. And he, he, uh, his background was in clinical psychology, um, dealing with people who were mentally disabled, the adults in 
you know, in workshops, but he recognized that, that it, what, what the, the problem they talked about that he confronted and did his PhD on was that a lot of these people had been, well, they were like 40 years old and he'd read in the clinical notes, you know, you know, John has been here for 18 years and really he should be moved on, but he's not making any progress. <laughs> he'd read that and um, he'd say, well, that's our fault. And, and, and what he got into was task delegation. And the model he built, which he then applied to um, senior executives, he said, he's, he's, he said his work with the disabled was the perfect preparation to deal with senior executives. Um, <laughs> if I give anybody a task, just imagine a hierarchy. So the lowest level of task is I tell you how to do it. Um, uh, this doesn't stretch you at all. It doesn't really engage your mind. So with the disabled, it might be something like you need more yeah, uh, I want you to start going to every Saturday afternoon. I want you to start going out to see the football matches, and and here's the bus you're going to catch, and here's how you, here's the money for the entrance, and here's when you come home, and just absolutely spell it out. And within that, they never grow. But if I went up a level, um, you know, you could go up to what they went to, to why. If I said you need to get more entertainment because you've got to really enjoy yourself more. Now, that's what I want you to do. Now, the, the, the range is huge. And um, that range requires the person getting the task to think out and be creative with it. Um, and, the, and, and so the highest level of task you can give anybody is here's the outcomes I want. Uh, how you get them is up to you. And, and that's, um, if we don't do that, then uh, we get micromanagement. And so what you're saying to me is that treat the Bible as a book of why, not how. And our task is to get inside the mind of the maker, his purposes, so that we can interpret them into our world. And of course, that would feel like an impossible thing because we can't penetrate his mind. But that's why he has revealed to us what his plans and purposes are. So we get a good idea of how we can take our part and play our role. Yes. Now, um, and you know, what you're saying is giving us that the word, the concept of order gives us a bigger um, doorway into his plans and purposes. Because I think the ordering is, is the cosmos. It isn't just our individual lives. Correct. Um, the, the, uh, there are another couple of things I wanted to, by the way, this conversation, John, is so interesting. As we're talking, I've got an idea, which is I, I think we should, you know, bring it to a tight close around about 40, 45 minutes. If you're up for it, I'd love to do it again next week and because I've got a whole lot of other questions here. Would you be up for that? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, so ongoing, order suggests ongoing, not static. We've talked about that. Um, the next thing which I think is really, really important is uh, this idea. I, I call it contested space. It's the fact that we are doing far more in life than battling against sin. You know, when I think of the situations I face in my life, um, and by that I mean, let's say family life, particularly social life, um, even in my own thought life, um, or particularly, you know, in the world of work and social interactions, to actually categorize them using sin and not sin doesn't get me very far, I've found. Um, for instance, what if I'm tired? What if I'm depressed? Um, I find more often than not, at the moment, for instance, I'm involved in a technology startup that's helping battle the COVID-19 crisis with big data and artificial intelligence. 
we're, we're sort of fighting non-order there, it feels to me. It's confusion, you know. So the enemies are often not easily put into the sin category. And I think that, that whereas what I see, so many Christians are just going into an introspective tangle over whether something's a sin or not. Whereas uh, disorder and non-order is really, really interesting. They're both, in a sense, enemies, but they're not necessarily moral. Could you please unpack that a little bit? Sure. Well, you take something like a virus. Um, a, a virus is not the fall. It's not something that's sinful or evil. Uh, the viruses are part of God's ordered world, and they have a role and a purpose in God's design of things. And every once in a while, there's a virus that really hits us hard, and we experience it very negatively. But I've been told by my science friends that, you know, 99 Point nine plus percent of viruses keep bacteria in check, and if they didn't do it, bacteria would wipe us out. So there's to try to categorize things only in moral terms gives us a very blunt instrument that often is not helpful for trying to understand the things that we encounter in the world. Whereas if we think in terms of non-order, order and disorder, the order spectrum. Uh, we can more easily deal with them. I, I think that's what the book of Job uh, deals with a lot. Chapter 38, God's first speech. Job, you thought you had all order figured out, but there's far more order than what you know. And the things that you thought were disorder or non-order actually have order to them. And you have to up your game. Yeah, to get into that, to, to, to work with me, you've got to up your game. And talk about... No, I. I Put simply, I'd say sin would fit more easily into disorder, but it's still a bigger word than sin because, as you've said, God can disorder can include deliberate disruption. Let's come to disorder in a moment, but non-order. Non-order would be I'm taking it. The virus, uh, tsunami, could be natural, could sure. be could be um, in in human activities things like confusion and um, misunderstanding. Distraction, yeah, uh, low pr bad priority setting. Uh, you know, all of those kinds of things, uh, uh, disorganization, you say these things work against order, though, of course, one person's organization is another person's disorganization. But at any rate, uh, all of those kinds of things don't fit into moral categories. You take something like an earthquake, we experience it very negatively, but you can't call it evil. It's the movement of tectonic plates. And if those plates didn't move, our world could not exist. So earthquakes come about as a result of order, even though occasionally they will bring uh, problems for us. But non-order uh, defines those things which are simply part of the world around us. And again, whether we talk about the virus, uh, or we talk about that in terms of aging, uh, we talk about in terms of even pain and suffering can be viewed as part of the non-ordered world that as God gave us the ability to begin ordering, we can relieve some of that, but we can't relieve all of it. So there would have been pain and suffering in the pre-fall world because Adam had a nervous system and therefore he could hurt himself. And uh, you had uh, presumably the existence of something called love. And if you can love, you can be hurt. Yes. By, by that process. So we have to understand that, that non-order uh, is something out there that we can try to manage, but it's, it's just there. 
It's very interesting um, what you've just said. Uh, I'd like to just run with that a bit. What you just said is that if you can love, you open yourself to being hurt. Um, and that, I think I often think about that with parenthood. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to have children, but you're opening yourself up to hurt, you know, vulnerability. Um, we all know that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and what you're saying is this is part of the not ordered world that, uh, in fact, it's, it's very interesting because uh, what you've said gives me an insight into order because you could say, well, look, why on earth did God let non-order around? Why didn't he just stick with order? But the truth is we know in relationships that um, to enter into the, uh, the cycle and the rhythm and the participation of life, you've got to open yourself up to vulnerability. You know, you, you, you can't keep risk out of your life. And in a way, God's order, which is a hugely subtle thing, is not some kind of Greek um, enclosed um, self-balancing system. It's a much more participatory system that open, love has got to open itself up. It's an open system, not a closed system, God's order, which means it's got to be, it's got to handle non-order and disorder. <laughs> And we've all learned in parenting that you can't just do everything for your children. It's their benefit. It's to their benefit that they make mistakes and they learn from their mistakes, and therefore they participate in that process of bringing order for their own lives. If you always do it for them and never get give them a chance to try it for themselves, it's it's going to be a problem somewhere along the line. You know, and as you were also talking, I was thinking about Jesus's miracles, because a lot of a lot of those miracles, he's confronting not order, not moral sin, actually right. possibly in most of them, like the storm and that. Right. And, and, and the picture we're getting is God's eventual rest of being able to, to manage the dynamism and, and uh, energy of the world, not to stop energy. He didn't want to stop the wind blowing. He didn't want to stop the sea. He didn't want to stop the tides, but he was going to bring them into subordination to his way of being. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, even when Jesus is doing things like casting out demons, it, it's never speaking about demons as sort of uh, forces that deprave people and make them sin. It rather brings disorder to their lives. And by casting out the demons, Jesus is restoring order in their lives. Yeah, that's a wonderful way to do it because, I mean, the picture of, you know, when you cast a demon out, the person is always settled and at rest. Exactly. From a, from a tangled life. Um, and, uh, and the disorder, just moving to that, and, and what I'm, what I'm going to suggest, uh, John, as we kind of look at disorder and then give ourselves a break, and, uh, and because I'm sure the people listening will have a lot to absorb on this if we throw too much at them, and, and you and I too, as, as <laughs> this is a, an unscripted conversation, the best sort. It's a, it's a conversation that's not ordered, right? It's kind of we're trying to find order in that. Um, the... The disorder is interesting because you, it's definitely, that feels to me, that's where the kind of ego comes in. That's the revolt comes in. Um, you were saying, however, sometimes you use the word disruptive, uh, that God himself disrupts there. Um, as you were talking, I was just privately wondering, and this is probably too big a question to, to finish on, uh, the degree to which Christians should be revolutionaries in political terms. I mean, think of Bonhoeffer or think of the times when Christians, generally speaking, are prepared to participate in a system, but there comes a point where they feel it's gone far enough and they need to be some sort of forces of disruption. Does that fit into disorder? What do you think? 
Sure. I mean, you take a book like Daniel, which I'm doing a lot of work in right now. And Daniel is a book that explores the dynamics of resistance. You know, when do you resist? When do you accommodate? Um, how do, what does that look like? Uh, and the, the Jews in their exile were faced with those kinds of questions, as were the Jews in the second century, uh, in the times of Antiochus Epiphanes, and really throughout their history, faced with when do you resist and when do you accommodate? And um, how, how should you be faithful in that mix of resistance and accommodation? And so I think there's a, a lot of that element that the Bible deals with. Certainly God is involved in disruptive action, whether it's the flood, which was a major disruption, uh, or the exile, uh, where he worked through Nebuchadnezzar to bring massive disruption for his people. Uh, God engages in disruption. Uh, when, uh, when people think that they have achieved a level of order, like Israel at the time of the exile, they were perfectly content with what they were doing. But God said, no, that's not the order that I want, because it's not characterized by covenant faithfulness. And so he brings a major disruption uh, in the person of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies to shake them into thinking about order um, at his level instead of at their level. Yeah, so, so that's really interesting. That's very powerful because um, what, what, what you're saying, and, and perhaps we could explore this more in, a, in, a, in our second conversation. Thank you for agreeing on the spot to a second conversation. <laughs> um, but what you're saying feels to me like, uh, as a believer, and particularly, say, for young believers, I've got a much bigger picture as to how I should be behaving in the world. If, if I'm in the sin-based paradigm, I need to go about what I call sin spotting, which is um, often, because of what we've just said, problematic. Is it, it, was it a sin for Bonhoeffer to try to kill Hitler, for example? You know? um, and you're saying, wrong question. Um, uh, we have a, there's a goal, there always is a goal, and the goal is order. Now, the, the contestants to order will be ongoing and they're moral, they're sin for sure, but they're also non-order and disorder. And it doesn't really matter which of those I'm confronted. You use the example of aging, as I said, a beloved friend of mine died last night, you know. Uh, aging and death and disease, these are non-order things. Um, uh, but they're, they're, our enemies, well, not enemies, our, our, our task is to bring order into all of these circumstances, be they, be they sin-defined or not. God created us to be order bringers alongside him, his order. And God saved us to be order bringers alongside him, his order, not ours. The whole problem with the Garden of Eden was we decided we wanted our order, not God's order. And that's, that's been the difficulty. I think we mis make a mistake to simply encapsulate, encapsulate that as sin. It was, it was. But but the bigger issue was we wanted to carry out order our way with our agenda. But God created us to bring order, his order, alongside of him, and he saved us to be order bringers. John, that is a great place to take a pause on, I think, um, uh, order bringers. Uh, I love that thought. 
I think, I don't know about you, but I feel like this is a, this is a territory that is new and can be a blessing to the, to the world of faith uh, and, and merits a lot more investigation. Is that your feeling? I, I think it does. I think it can change how we think about ourselves in the world, about God and what he's doing in the world, or about the Bible and what it is. It, it affects every aspect of Christian faith. Great. Well, John, um, thank you so much for your time. You're off to dinner. I'm off to a, a day's Zoom meeting work in the COVID-19 world, because although I'm retired, I'm still doing tons of stuff. But uh, look, I love you. We all love you. We, we uh, I mean, Anne and I pray for you and your ministry. It's a wonderful one. And God bless you and Kim. Great, Tony. Great to talk with you. And I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. Bye.